Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch, a co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. And I want to welcome you to the second part of our two-part look at gender hermeneutics in Paul, where we focus on 1 Corinthians 11. In this episode, I had the privilege of uh, sitting down with my colleague and boss, Lucy Peppiot, to talk about her work on this passage. She's written two books on 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, she has a, a very uh, interesting and compelling take on it. Uh, if you haven't heard the first episode, you might want to go back and have a listen. Uh, Lucy and Michael Lakey, who I interviewed in the previous episode on this, um, agree in many respects, but differ on whether they think Paul wrote all of 1 Corinthians 11, which has significant implications for what kind of gender uh, theology you think Paul has. Uh, so Lucy will suggest that Paul was quoting and then refuting his opponents, which, as you can imagine, lands you in a very different place. So hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And uh, as always, uh, check us out on, you know, uh, Apple iTunes and blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, the stuff you're supposed to say at the beginning of a podcast. Uh, and give us a five-star rating, wherever, wherever that is, you know, maybe just in your heart. We appreciate that. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch. I'm here today with Lucy Peppiot, who is principal at Westminster Theological Center, where she also lectures in systematic theology, and where I also work as academic dean. In addition to her role as principal, Lucy co-leads CrossNet Church in Bristol, and she's the author of The Disciple on Becoming Truly Human, Women in Worship in Corinth, and recently... Most recently, unveiling Paul's women making sense of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. And we'll be discussing the latter two books today to continue our um, conversation from last week's episode with Michael Lakey. Lucy, welcome to OnScript. Hi, thanks. Lucy, what was your route to becoming principal of a theological college? Was, it, was that your childhood aspiration? <laughs> No, it wasn't. <laughs> Nothing I've done has been my childhood aspiration. Oh, okay. Um, well, I started when I was doing my PhD. I started doing a bit of teaching at WTC and also Trinity College Bristol. So, I was, um, people were nice to me and gave me some teaching opportunities, which was great. And um, and then I found myself in a position where. Uh, there were some gaps at WTC for jobs and I got offered the Dean of Studies job, which was a surprise. Um, and I was pleased to take that. So I've done your job, Matt. And you've done your job. <laughs> you've done a much better job. <laughs> no, I didn't do a better job. And uh, and then and then WTC actually went through a funding crisis and I found myself in the middle of that and uh, felt that 
Was it that your childhood aspiration? No, that certainly <laughs> to wasn't land in the middle of a funding crisis. Aspiration, although it has its highs and uh, I mean it's quite exhilarating in some senses. I found um, because it really focuses everybody on on priorities and what you actually really want. And it was a good thing. It was a very good thing for WTC for us to be thrown out on our own and have to sink or swim. And um, we, as you know, we gathered some amazing people around us, you being one of them. Oh, and, thanks. Uh, and, we, uh, and we made the college, I think, into what it was meant to be, uh, which is a very exciting place to study and teach theology. Yeah, that it is. Um, did you, uh, on your journey to getting into academics and becoming a principal, did you face any opposition um, to your studies in academia or leading a college because you're a woman? Um, no, I didn't actually. I, I think I've been remarkably sheltered in that regard and I it's unusual for someone not to face opposition. I think when I was studying my PhD, I used to say to Nick, my husband, that I didn't think people really knew at all what I was doing. So no one ever asked me about it. And, I, and if I if I mentioned it, it was kind of a conversation stopper. So, it, so not really opposition, but m- more of slight indifference. Like, why would you bother spending all your time doing something like that when I was studying and had children small children um but then the the principal's job again we were you know at WTC we were very much under the radar in those years and so I think people just slightly ignored it rather than deciding to campaign against me yeah and wh- why did you decide to get into the study of theology in the first place because I was doing a lot of preaching um, in our church and I, in my mid-twenties I had felt that I should, um, I thought God was calling me to a preaching ministry actually, which was kind of unusual at the time. Um, there weren't many young women who were doing stuff like that in our world. Um, <clears throat> and that was confirmed by my vicar who was my uncle and my curate who was my husband <laughs> so it's really nepotistic there but um but nice to be affirmed by your nearest and dearest and so they they said yeah yes start, go do it so I became a lay reader in the Anglican church which is a preaching ministry and then <clears throat> had lots of opportunities to preach but as I was doing that this growing sense that I actually didn't really know what I was talking about a lot of the time. <laughs> it's good to be aware of that. True, but <laughs> I wish more were. <laughs> I'm not sure much has changed, but um, but and and I would listen to other teachers and and listen to my husband who'd done a whole degree and think actually investing if you're going to teach and preach you should study. So um, that was the beginning, and I signed up for a bachelor's degree um which I did by correspondence uh while we lived in Zimbabwe and Sheffield and then and then I sort of became an addict really as that happens you know and I thought well I can't stop now Um, and went on to do a master's and then in my master's met my supervisor Murray Ray and he said you should think about doing a PhD. The rest is history. Yeah. 
So moving on to your <clears throat> books on First Corinthians, you've written uh, Women in Worship in Corinth, and then the follow-up to that, which is a more accessible version of it, yeah. uh, Unveiling Paul's Women. When did you know that you had hit on something about First Corinthians 11 that needed more research, and that ultimately led you to write the book? Um, <clears throat> well, I knew quite uh, very early on, I think, I started to research women in Paul because I, I never actually had done. I'd done my PhD in systematic theology on Christ and the Spirit and Trinitarian theology, so which I love. and um, <clears throat> But found myself as the principal of a college and a woman, obviously, um, being asked a lot, what, well, what do you think about the women and the Bible what do you think about these passages and what do you think about Paul and and I thought gosh I haven't actually really thought that through I and I didn't I knew I didn't have good enough answers and um so I I thought I must do my own research and I I thought it would t I thought it would take me a couple of days of reading literally I thought it'd be fine I'll just we got some good commentaries at home cuz you know Nick collects bible commentaries and um and I can go to the library and I'll just do, read a few commentaries make a few notes and it'll be sorted and I started um with Gordon Fee because I think he's brilliant and I thought I'm sure he's got all the answers so I and I thought well I'll start with 1 Corinthians 11 I know there are other passages but um, let's just start there and it was like going into a sort of vortex I mean I, I so I obviously read the text first and thought it's very strange this this passage um, and then turned to fee and it felt like I was being, I, I thought, I'm not sure that I'm clearer after that, actually. I mean, he'd done very close work. and um, But I thought, if I had to explain that in five minutes, could I do that? And realised I couldn't at all. Um, and that I still had an awful lot of questions that I didn't think Fee had answered. So then I went to Thistleton and then I went and said that started my journey. And um, the more that I read, um, actually, the more confused I became. Uh, and the more I immersed myself in the text, the more confused I became. And then I kept reading these very big scholars and intelligent men and women who were saying this is a very confusing passage. So, um, so it took me weeks, months, it sucked me in and I, and I, yeah, so, and I still, I still will read it, read the text, and read about it as when I can. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of the problems you um, thought through in a moment. But I want, I want to talk for a moment about the fact that you've taught this passage now for um, a couple years to quite a few audiences, and how do women react when they read First Corinthians eleven? In your experience. Where it depends on the age group. Um, so what I tend to do is I want people to engage with the text as they receive it to start with, because I think that's the best place to teach from. So um, it, it, I, and I realized early on that with an older group of people, um, they are less inclined to to criticize 
the biblical text or or to admit that they f- have difficulties with it um and so because what I ask them to do is to read the passage or I read it out loud and then I ask them to have a look at it and to say um so I'll, I'll ask a gentle question like if Paul was here what would you want to ask him you know something like that if 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 that doesn't bring anything up um in terms of <clears throat> trying to get them to say that there are difficulties in the text or <clears throat> or that they find it offensive in any way um then i'll i'll push a bit harder and sort of say well where are the problems is there anything you find offensive or difficult you know so um but i found with an older group uh, one time i was teaching it and i said just just pretend it's not the Bible and tell me what you think. And that unleashed a whole load of response that I uh, that I wasn't really prepared for. Um, and that was the older people. If I ask a younger group of people, the young women are very vocal about how difficult they find this text. And that they, I mean, at best they'll say they don't understand it and look sort of... Um, kind of hurt in some ways and it and it and then sometimes I have someone expressing real mm. anger at Paul mm. in a group. Do you think that generational difference is because older women have been exposed to the text more and so they it's sort of a little hard to extricate themselves from this being in their Bible um, and just a normal part of things whereas maybe younger groups have a different experience and not, um, not as much exposure? I think that maybe it's more, there's a sort of self-selecting, I'm speaking to a group of people and those women have been in church for a long time, so they've chosen to. So I'm not speaking to people who have left and not come back because they've found the church difficult as women. So these are women who've they're probably for quite a long time have made choices to acquiesce to certain systems that that are not amenable to women often in the evangelical world, but they've made a decision that they will put God and the church first and that they'll kind of put up with other stuff. So that that years of putting up with stuff forms you into a certain type of person and and they've learned, I think, that it you know it's easier just to give in or to receive something. And not question, because I think that if you allow yourself those those sort of um, angry responses or, um, you, you know, it's you're then at odds with the people that are teaching you or you're sitting with and worshipping with. And um, that can be exhausting and, and put you on the outside. And I think a lot of women have made it many sacrifices just to stay you know just to be there and and like women who will go to churches where the men don't think that women should teach and and they don't they're not really happy with that but they want to go to church and their friends go to church and they want their kids to go to church and so so they just learn to not to question and not to allow that sort of I guess you know outrage in a sense that but with the younger crowd and especially if they're going to churches where they, I mean their church may be led by a young woman or whatever um they don't mind so much about expressing it yeah yeah um you talk in the book about the importance of the imagination and and I thought that was interesting because for for a lot of people when they hear 
the imagination. They might think importing things into the text. You know, we're going to imagine a scenario in Corinth. So what do you think is the the positive or constructive role of the imagination in interpreting 1 Corinthians 11? Well, first of all, I would say that everybody has imagined scenarios when they're reading the Bible. So it's it, it would be a complete falsehood to think that there are people who don't do that and they everybody is going to bring something either I mean they may say oh no but the text is telling us that this is the case but this is the fascinating thing about the the whole picture of Paul and women is that it has fired people's imagination the text and some of the history that we know of the early church has fired people's imaginations in completely opposite directions. And that is a really fascinating phenomenon. So you, it, it disallows us from claiming the ground of saying, you know, the way I imagine it to be is superior to the way you imagine it to be because, you know, because somehow my imagination is is well founded and yours isn't so the we all imagine even when we hear stories about Jesus and how he he reacts to people and how he treats people we get pictures in our head about who he is and the expression on his face and you know and then and then we read the text through that yeah tone of voice yeah and so imagination is a massively important part of how we receive our faith through the text. And so first of all, we're all doing it. Um, and secondly, it's easier if you if someone's open about what this, this is how I imagine it to be. And and actually, I was I I, I kind of love the that process as I was reading about 1 Corinthians 11 I was always being asked by these Bible scholars imagine just imagine I was thinking I yeah I know but I don't imagine like you imagine you know you you imagine that I don't and and um as if and once they had said imagine this as if then that was the reality and I thought that's a funny step to make you know imagine imagine all the women chattering at once during the whole service. And mm. I was like, actually, I can't. <laughs> you know? Like, I think probably they wanted to hear the teaching. You know, yeah, it's like this yeah. sort of assumption that women just gossip all the time. And being underneath. worked up into an ecstatic yeah. frenzy. Oh, yeah, the ecstatic <laughs> frenzy one. I mean, that's, you know, so uh, as a, a, a woman who I think is interested in, in learning and reasonably intelligent. And I assume many of the women in the early church were like that. I don't necessarily want to gossip all the way through my church service. So, you know, anyway, so the imagination is a very important part of how we receive the text. And, um, and I think a good process for all of us is to look at what, how is the text firing our imagination? And what have we been taught already that, that it actually has just, been imagined and now has mm -hmm. become a reality for us that mm -hmm. isn't in the text. And so, as you began to imagine the situation in Corinth, what questions do you, what aspects of the imagined scenario do you begin to question that you were reading in, among commentators? So, I there were there was one very clear um, disjunction that I noticed, and it was that as I was reading in the commentaries, there's a consensus 
that Paul is addressing men by and large in the letter of 1 Corinthians and that it was the men that were causing problems for him. They were being divisive um, and that there was a, so, so there are clues for us in the text that he is addressing the, the males in the, in the church. Um, but then you would get to 1 Corinthians 11 and, and, and 14 where there's at the end where there's also the, the reference to women staying silent and asking their husbands at home. And so, um, and then suddenly they would say, well, obviously the women were being really difficult here. And, um, and I couldn't, what I couldn't reconcile really was, but the, so the heart of the problem with the women is that they're taking their head coverings off. And um, that to me did seem really odd. I, I mean, I, I, and it doesn't come anywhere else in the New Testament. And so, but that, that, in, is really in a nutshell what the problem was. I know there are issues that some people think this is about hair. I, I don't really don't think it is. Um, we could talk about that, but but mostly I think the consensus is with the head coverings and the people that I think have looked. Mo the, the, I don't know how quite how to say this, but the people well the people I find more convincing, let's say, are, are the ones who all say this is head coverings, and I I find their reading of the text most convincing. Um, and therefore, if it's about if the problem is that women are taking their head coverings off in worship, what is that telling us about the church? Hmm. Hmm. Um. Now, we spoke in the last episode of OnScript with Michael Lakey about evangelical hermeneutics and 1 Corinthians 11, and he identified a number of, of problems with complementarian and egalitarian readings of the text, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, and you've come to similar conclusions as well, that both of the standard readings of, of this passage don't really work. So, um, I'm wondering if we could just go through and identify some of the problems that you saw in the text that pose challenges to both egalitarian and complementarian um, readings of the text. Um, so, so first of all, why, why do you think a cultural reading of the passage is wrong? And, and by that, I mean um, saying, well, this is a cultural situation where head coverings in that society were a way of of honoring people, honoring husbands, I guess. And, um, you know, Paul's just speaking into that situation, but given that our culture is different, it no longer applies. Yeah, so that would be a sort of standard egalitarian reading, I think. Um, I don't think that the text offers that to us at all. Um, and I, that's where Michael and I um, think the same. Um, so y you said where did I go to in a sense with the text and the the key verses are verses seven to nine which is what I mean Michael's book is called Image and Glory and I think that the text is telling us very clearly that there is there are reasons for why women should be veiled in worship in public worship and um, the reason that Paul 
gives if it well Michael thinks it's Paul I don't think it's Paul um, but the reasons that the women in Corinth are expected to be veiled during worship are theological um, very clearly and they they're rooted in create in a creation theology which I find difficult to reconcile to the creation theology that we find in Genesis and this is a really interesting discussion because um, Michael doesn't find it so difficult to reconcile to Genesis and I really do so that's a um, that's a good scholarly debate that I think we need to carry on having actually because I'm I'm not sure we've really got to the bottom of that um, I certainly don't feel I have and I and I'm sure Michael would be interested in carrying on this discussion so the verses are for a man ought not to have his head veiled so the and the issue this is clearly the issue that is that the text is saying men you need to not wear a, a veil over your head which was pra common practice among Roman and Jewish men um, and so they are being told in, in this text that they should take their head covering off in the public worship. And the reason that they're to do that is because they are the image and glory of God. Um, but woman, so, so there's, there's this sort of contrast set up between the man and the woman. And the man doesn't wear anything on his head because of his status in God, which is that he is God's image and glory. So he has a particular relationship to God, which means that he doesn't need to cover his head. Now, that's kind of a mystery for us, but very interesting that this is telling us that. And um, so the woman, so, okay, so you're like, oh, okay, so man, man, that's man's role or status before God but isn't that woman's as well isn't that what we're told in Genesis I think we are um but no woman is actually the glory of man so she so her glory I, I think that how I would describe it is that the text is telling us that the woman has a derived glory or a reflected glory or something so her glory is she has her glory um, by virtue of the, her relationship with the man, not with God, and he has his relationship with God. Yeah, it feels like a, a funny combination of Genesis 1 and 2, yeah. where you have the man created first, then the woman, yeah. and, and then going back to Genesis 1 and seeing man made in the image of God, mm -hmm. which is actually defined then as male and female, but skipping that part, taking the Adam made in the image of God, and then going to Genesis 2 and saying, well, the woman's second, and so the man is has that kind of direct relationship yeah. with God, and the woman comes after, so it's derived. Yes. So it's a, it's a, it is a, you could you could see how someone could cut the pieces of Genesis 1 and 2 and construct that picture, you, but it seems like a distorted reading of Genesis 1 and 2. Well, and that's interesting because that is what... Um, complementarian or, or well, hierarchical readings as I would call them of of gender relations from the text that's exactly what they do so um, and, and this text gives us a, a a sort of further 
window into how someone might do that, how, how they might take those two texts and, and sort of make a pastiche where where man is has priority and precedence, which is, and that's what Michael sees in this text, and I see it too. So I, I think, well, yeah, that, and, and that that's a that's the reason given is that that man has a privileged position in his relationship with God. Woman has a derived um, position from man, and and then this this strange um, connection then between the the woman who has to wear a, a some sort of symbol or sign of authority over her um, and then that links us straight back to verse three where you have a, the reference to head so your physical head is representative of your symbolic head, who in the woman's case is a man. Yeah, let me just read verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. So you have, just to unscramble that, you have God is the head of Christ, and then Christ is the head of man, and the man's the head of woman. Yeah, and and you uh, you're reading from which that's the NRSV. Yeah, uh, that's what I've got in front of me. So we've both got husband, which actually I think is the correct translation. That, but in a lot of Bibles, it will just say man. So so Christ is yeah. This is an interesting thing in the NRSV. Christ is the head of every every man, and the husband is the head of the wife. So they've made a decision there to use man in one sense in the first pairing and then to change the same word into husband in the second, um, which is a, that's a big theological decision right there. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and then God's the head of Christ. So, so, that's, so already those editors have, and translators have, they've made a really big decision for us. Um, and it, Why that, is that so big? Because um, if you said Christ is, so you've got two other options. You could say Christ is the head of every husband and the husband is the head of his wife. That actually, I think that's pretty poor line. So I would be happy with that. I, I'd go with that as in I would say, I think that's probably what Paul thought. Um, and then, and God is the head of Christ. I mean, we could. I think yeah. Paul had a very clear view of what he thought a head was, and yeah. it doesn't mean authority. So, and rule. so what? Yeah. What do you think? Because <laughs> I so mean, to could, be to be comfortable with that is is a little um, surprising for some people. Comfortable with the fact that it's Paul. Yeah, well, well, th <laughs> that um, I then mean, I would describe what I think he means by head. Yeah, yeah. Well, which I, is a whole I, other conversation. Yeah. Do you have a, a brief snapshot of that? A brief snapshot would I, I think if you. <clears throat> I think that this idea that Paul uses of the husband as the kephale of the wife, oh, it, it comes up in Ephesians 5. So I think it is a pretty clear, I, I, I think he taught that. Um, and But I think that his, what he was doing there was he was actually redefining the role of the male in the household and the husband in the household. Um, as being a, a a sacrificial and empowering role, I would probably put it in those. Those would be my two main um, concepts that I think come through. So he 
he the the husband lays down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his life for the church, but also is the cornerstone. So the other the other um, idea that's very much linked to this idea of kephale in Paul's writing it it, it comes up in Colossians, where um, Christ is the head over all things, but he's the, also the cornerstone. So he it's like in him everything holds together, and I think that Paul understood the role of the man in that society as being you know they had all the power I mean they literally had all the power and um with that power I think that they were supposed to in Paul's mind in his view they were called as Christian men to exercise that in a particular way which was as one who empowers by sacrificing. So that's a radical difference between seeing head as the one who rules over and has authority. So Yeah. So he uses a term that men might have nodded their heads at and then redefines it redefines it. Yeah, yeah. I mean he was like, well you are the head because they were. They, I mean they they that was it. They were you know, they ran everything. They had their households. They could do what they wanted with the people in their households. They had the right of life or death over them. They could sleep with them all if they wanted, you know. So Paul redefining that that role as a monogamous but you know if they were married then they had to be monogamous everyone else was out of bounds that's really radical and that's your wife and you you know she's yours and um and and then their role in terms of how they should empower their wives uh i think is very clear and that also comes out in one peter so but to go back to so so this interesting here the the verse 3 of how it's translated is important because if you if in the your bibles it says but i want you to understand that christ is the head of ev every man which is what it says in ours um then immediately you've got a question of well which ma is that every every man that's ever been created has this relationship to christ uh, that's so that's creation theology if you say Christ is the head of every husband, then that's marriage theology and marriage and sort of gender theology. Um, and But it, you, you could say, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman. And again, that is creation gender theology. So it's all, you have, really, I think readers... Um, have to and teachers have to make a decision about how they are going to translate um, that word those words for husband and wife and man and woman now um, I want to shift gears here and do a speed round um, and the idea is I uh, ask questions and you have uh, about three to five seconds to answer them <laughs> and they can't be too well thought out <laughs> Okay, um, what's the most absurd interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 that you've encountered? <laughs> I know the answer to this. <laughs> this is the best question. Um, uh, for me personally, although I know some people take it more seriously, uh, the oddest interpretation that I've ever heard is that the, is that the head covering symbolizes an external testicle. Obviously. <laughs> It's self-evident. Yeah, it is. Actually, I think that might be hair, which is kind of even worse. <laughs> oh, oh my word! That is horrible. I no, no, 
it's really yeah. no no it's really horrid and yeah. because there's also reference to semen as well which makes wow. it even worse how, how do people end up in that place <laughs> where they're reading the bible that way it's very I disturbing okay know. um knock knock who's there cow says cow says who no cow says moo <laughs> knock knock who's there a little old lady a little old lady who all this time I knew you, I, I didn't know that you could yodel. <laughs> okay. Knock, That's knock. That's a good one. Who's there? Etch. Etch who? Bless, Bless you, you, my friend. <laughs> good. Right, what's the most significant book in systematic theology in the last 50 years? Oh, my word. You know that is an impossible question. And yeah, it, it is hard. I really... There's only there's so only one way of being possibly able to answer that I think um, in that so I, I'm going to say that Moltmann's book uh, the Crucified God it was like a I think it represents a watershed moment in the last fifty years a little over fifty um, <coughs> of how the doctrine of God um, was reshaped post-war. And I think um, thinking had been going that way, obviously, but there was something about, I think, the publication of this book um, that was a marker in in saying pe- people are thinking differently there was a there was a challenge to the classical doctrine of God which um, and theologians have have to respond to that now in an ongoing way and I I see it in the classroom and I hear it in sermons and I you know literally and so I think I think what he did and what he was expressing through that um, is a was a moment that has is significant where do you think we hear it most at the popular sermon level like what what would be a phrase that's Moltmannian in origin that we might not realize i think phrases like the suffering god without god in christ for instance is you know so i would be more comfortable with right um, god in christ suffered rather yeah, than god yeah <laughs> in god's self-suffering yeah god in the flesh um so the idea of god in his essence in his being suffering in the same way that we suffer because that's the assumption behind it so that my suffering tells me how God suffers Um, and that's I think that's pretty sort of common parlance really yeah it's Um, interesting that's made its way into biblical studies as well right with uh, Richard Bauckham and Terence Fretheim and others um, would would have taken up that Mm -hmm. that theme all right we I got sucked in Um, I'm gonna keep going the speed round (laughs) knock knock who's there Mustache. Mustache who? I must ask you a question, <laughs> but I will save shave it for later. <laughs> I botched shave that one. It. All right. Shave it for later. All right, knock knock. Who's there? I eat mop. I eat mop who? <laughs> That's revolting. <laughs> All right. What's one idea in biblical or theological study that you think needs to die? Um I think it's dying, but I definitely think the idea that biblical scholars and systematic theologians can work in isolation from each other needs to just die forever. Yeah, I've tried it in this (laughs) office. and It's not really working. (laughs) All right. What have you learned through failure in your work? Um, I've learned that I don't like failing. Um, 
I've learned an awful lot through failure in lots of areas. Um, I've learned, what would I say? I think it's really good to be aware of your own limitations and just to work with what you're capable of and be happy with what you're not capable of doing. Um, and so you get a sort of much more realistic sense of your own self. Um, I think it it definitely keeps you humble. Um, sometimes it's a bit too crushing, and then you have to work through why have I been allowed? Why why have I let this really crush me? And what power have those people got over me that that you know I feel like my failure might take me out completely and you you really you know because that's that's silly in what I mean it's kind of you got to grow up you know so the the kind of crushing things um are really good I think to have to get over and get through and and sort out in yourself why you can't cope with any form of rejection and kind of get healed enough to to cope with people not liking you not liking what you do you know being whatever and um and I think that's a good process in life yeah who's your favorite theologian living and dead dead um I have lots of I have so many favorite theologians you have to pick one I know I hate the way you do this um <laughs> it changes also it changes all the time so I you can do one with a sidekick. One with a sidekick. I I always I go back to Athanasius a lot. I yeah. What shall I say? What is sidekick today? Be, be John Owen. John Owen. Oh yeah, John Owen. Oh, let's say John Owen today. Mm-hmm. But tomorrow I might say something different. Right, how about alive? Alive. Um, is Athanasius alive? No, not okay. anymore. Okay. Well, with the Lord, he is. Okay, yeah, true. <laughs> um, I really like Catherine Tanner and then definitely linked to that Ian McFarland because he was um, he, her students. I like their Christology a lot. Uh, most overrated theologian. <laughs> <laughs> alive. <laughs> Just kidding. You don't have to do alive. Matt Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, most overrated there's definitely a name in my head which i would not be prepared to say okay Uh, first letter of the (laughs) name of that person okay okay um how do you find time to write books co-lead a church teach have a family (laughs) and lead a theological college what are what are your time efficiency pro tips um time efficiency is plan everything really carefully so i'm I'm a inveterate planner, um, and I I spend a lot of time planning as as much as I do working, so that I know I chunk my time. I make sure I work. I, I so I'll do different tasks at different times of the day to maximise my best thinking time, my worst times. You know, for so I have meetings, emails, thinking, writing, blah blah blah. Um, and um, early nights and early mornings. It. Yeah. early mornings yeah early mornings are the best because yeah. then you don't have 
thing. And your early mornings are like 3 a.m.? Well, five. Five, okay. (laughs) And last one, what are the hallmarks of charismatic theology? That's a good question. Um, I would, charismatic theology, well, the big hallmark is this idea that human beings can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that, obviously, that's a, it's an anthropological claim that God can pour out his spirit into us as beings, like creatures, and that we somehow are receptacles of the spirit physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, so that's a big claim about human being, and I, I think it's a great one because um, I think it's true. And then and then all the, the all the theology of... <clears throat> of the charismatic life life in the spirit kind of flows out of that so what are the implications of that if you can be filled with the spirit of god mm-hmm. all right shifting from the speed round um a couple more questions on the problems with first corinthians 11 and i know our time's running short um one of the things that i thought that you pointed out i thought was quite interesting is um the problem with verse um I don't know which one it is, but it says nature teaches that long hair is a disgrace. Um, And this is with regard to men. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but, but you pointed out that it would be, this is from 37, page 37 in your book. It would be very odd if, if it were Paul who was saying this because he himself had long hair while he was in Corinth and in Acts 18, 18, uh, Luke uh, makes a reference to Paul cutting his hair when he left Corinth in relation to a vow he had made before he went there. And you figured out that his hair would have been at least nine inches long. Mm-hmm. So there's Paul, long-haired. If this is Paul saying this, you know, hey, mm. guys, it's a disgrace <laughs> if men have a long hair, and he's this long-haired hippie yeah. saying it. Like, So um, that touches on part of, part of your uh, approach to this text. So what is your kind of constructive alternative to standard egalitarian and complementarian readings of 1 Corinthians 11? Right, yeah. So I, so I have, um, I reject the cultural reading, um, I think on good grounds really, that I, I don't think that the text invites us to understand this in terms of a cultural practice. That's very problematic. Um, not least of all because there wasn't actually one cultural practice that everyone conformed to. So the idea that if I wore head covering that I would offend nobody or, or that if I didn't I would offend everybody is actually not true of the culture. Right, because you have Greek, Roman, and yeah. Jewish practices yeah. all kind of different. And so... <coughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's lots of reasons why the cultural um, reading is flawed. Um and then the the hierarchical reading actually is definitely within the text, but is um, theologically problematic because it's based on the idea, and Michael brings this out so clearly in his book, and I think brilliantly, um, is because it's based on the assumption that the woman is metaphysically subordinate to the man. That's what I mean. He he brings this out so clearly, and I, I think his book is really brilliant. A big yeah. plug for his book. Yeah, and it's way. not just a... a she doesn't just have a role that's different than man with equal no. standing before God, but no. she's actually subordinate. Yes, and hence the need for the covering. And that's an interesting point because we actually don't know what the covering actually means. That we, we, We're not really told apart from this concept of authority, which comes out in verse 10. Um, do I mean that? 
Yes, and and the angels, of course. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. want to offend them. Not at all. No. So, um, so, so that's why I think that hierarchical readings or the ones that that say, well, of course, you should wear a head covering because you're subordinate. That's really not a good message. Um, and the cultural one, I don't is wrong. I think. So I was sort of left with a dilemma, um, but then. <clears throat> one of the things that I saw and everyone see, most people see, is the um, flip-flopping in the passage of Paul seemingly espousing certain views in 7 to 9 and then giving us a very different view in verse 12 or, uh, or well, starting at 11 and then 11 and 12, where suddenly it seems like, oh, no, wait a minute. Now you're saying, you were, were saying that man was related to woman like this, and now you're saying they're interdependent. Yeah. And, yeah, because it says, uh, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. Yeah. Yeah. So the... the commentators on the passage are divided um, by how severely you think the break happens at 11 whether is he contradicting himself or is he just giving a slight tweak or or is it actually that he's continuing along his thought lines um, <clears throat> and I and many others think that this is a contradictory statement so he's saying one thing then he's saying something different so there were very for me there were clues in the passage that the passage was incoherent as a piece and um, that it actually has contradictions within it and problems within it that make it difficult to read it as a whole. I think most people reading it straight off will see that. They do see that. Um, so you either have to sort of really, really try and convince someone that there it works as a coherent whole. And actually, Michael's done a pretty good job of that, although he hasn't convinced me, which he knows. But um, the... Uh, and, and also the theological implications of what he thinks it means are just awful. Um, but <clears throat> or, or you say, well, wait a minute, Paul is saying two different things at once. And then that took me to the point and I heard actually Douglas Campbell talking about the whole thing of Paul using rhetorical strategies, uh, rhetorical um, writing in his letters and often citing his opponents or citing the people he disagrees with and then and then I thought of course he does that in 1 Corinthians he does it a lot in 1 Corinthians and actually it's seeming now that commentators are thinking he's doing it a lot more than we all, all thought in the beginning yeah so he quotes so an opponent and then yeah. refutes that view yeah and mm -hmm. and anyway that fits with the whole setting of 1 Corinthians that we know he's engaged in discussion and dispute with with the guys at Corinth um, this R1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians so there's been some back and forth and, and the more I reflected on that the more I suddenly thought actually I think that he's just engaging his opponents here and that the worst ideas in this passage are theirs and and that to me so I my book Women and Worship at Corinth is is it, is taking three passages in 11 to 14 where I think that there's a pattern of, of a rhetorical argument um, marked by an inconsistency in meaning. So you, you have even blatant contradictions like you have in 14, 20 to 25 is a much clearer 
example mm. of this mm. actually. Yeah, um, and what happens there? That's like, in the tongues and prophecy passage, mm-hmm. where Paul's given you a big lead up to what he thinks tongues is and what he thinks prophecy is, and in really brilliant, I think, sort of explanation for us of what tongues is and how it functions, what prophecy is, how it functions, and this is what it's here for. And you're uh, by by the time you get to um, to fourteen twenty to twenty five. You're, you're fully expecting him to say, so tongues is a gift for believers or a sign for believers mm. and prophecy is a sign for unbelievers. Yeah. And he doesn't. He says exactly the opposite. Yeah, verse 22, tongues yeah. then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy yeah. is not for believers but for, um, not for unbelievers but for believers. Yeah. And and you do, that totally... Uh, takes you by surprise and you're thinking but you don't mean that you've just been saying the opposite and then you get to the end of the um of 14 and he's talking about or the end of that section and he's talking about unbelievers walking in and saying oh god is really among you because you yeah. prophesied to yeah them. but if all prophesy an unbeliever <laughs> outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account so there it's for outsiders yeah. so he's yeah yeah there's a direct so, so there's this there. switch that's happens in 22 and jb phillips famously uh, thought that that was just a mistake and swapped them over mm. because mm. Because it, it really it doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah, so let's just make it make sense. Whereas I think, well, you can't really swap them over, not really. Um, but you could say this does make sense if you say that's what the Corinthians were thinking that Paul is correcting. So I think that he's doing it in three places in 11 to 14, which is all his section on worship and how we should conduct ourselves in worship, including this amazing um, sort of rebuke that he has for them about the poor, which is very significant, I think, because I think that it, the, the rebuke he has for them about the poor, it is bolsters my understanding of how he is also rebuking them for oppressing women. Um, so he, so they're oppressing the women by saying, um, look, we're the head of you and we're the image and glory and you're not. And so for you not to have your head coverings on is shaming us and making us look bad in front of the angels, whatever that means. But they clearly had some quite developed angelology, mm. actually. Yeah. Um, and Paul also addresses that in yeah. other, you know. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to, to highlight that. So <laughs> so what you've done here is you've shown how there are internal contradictions within First Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 and elsewhere. We know that Paul quotes his opponents and then if certain sections of 11, 2 to 16 are Pauline, that creates problems with other parts of his own letter. So yeah. just as an example, if he's saying, women, you got to cover your head because of the angels, you don't want to offend them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, you bring this out in the book, Paul says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced by death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to mortals. So Paul is saying, we've, you know, we've been the lowest of the low as apostles, and that's our status marker, and, and that we're humiliated even before angels. Mm. And exactly. he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to worry about that. No, precisely. And, and then, so the other thing, you asked me about, you know, how I arrived at different 
decisions. And the other thing about Paul addressing men is that he also is addressing the honor shame culture. So, so this this was the other big. I'm glad you brought that up because that that was one of the other biggest sticking points for me was that I'd read these commentators the massive consensus that Paul is dealing with the honor shame culture in a way of deconstructing it you know like saying look we're all I'm shamed as an apostle that's I live he lived in shame and and he thought that was his honor was yeah. that he lived in shame yeah. so my chains here they the, are yeah. You know. yeah so so then to implement a cultural system of honor and shame in the middle of the church to do with men and women, I thought yeah. that's really, really... Um, yeah. Ass backwards. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I didn't buy it. I mean, I don't buy it. And, I, and one of the things that I think is that I, I'm... I might, I may not be right. I don't say in my book, this is definitely exactly what's going on in the passage. But... Um, if Michael's right, we, it's deeply worrying, really, and he knows that um, because we have a, a text in in the middle of our Bibles that is is really, really um, theologically disparaging to women and um, <clears throat> demeaning of women. Uh, and the but if and if I'm right, then I've rescued Paul and rescued women. Um, if neither of us is right then we've really got to go dig back into this passage because the current explanations are incoherent. They they don't work. They're not really, really wrestling with the problems that the passage presents us with. And I and I think if you know, that's one of my frustrations really with the scholarship is that I think that there's a people are not actually letting the text tell them what it's saying and dealing with that. Yeah. Well, um, and, and you've highlighted in your book how even early uh, church theologians recognized that there were some potential theological problems with this passage that they had to deal with and address. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Augustine, he's the great example of that because he, he so verses seven to nine are the really, they're the highly problematic verses. And um, because they That's are, where it talks about the woman being the image of man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and so and it was. Re- it is common to read those verses, people, to, and to say, "Well, is he really saying that woman's not the glory, not not the image and glory?" Um, and so, there, other people have tried to make it into a, a into a sort of compliment for women. You know, oh, you're you're like the crowning glory of a man. Um, I I don't. I'm really. <laughs> Not convinced by that. It's not. Um, it's not very enticing. No, and and I don't think. I just don't think that's what it's saying. The the, the reason because it's the reason given for the woman to having to wear a head covering. It's not. You know, um, so you're the crowning glory of the man. And if the glory, if glory is displayed by not wearing head covering, then why isn't your glory? Even if that was true, then why why aren't you released from wearing head covering as well? So that your glory, the man's glory through you can be manifest. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's all. Anyway. It doesn't quite work. No, yeah. it doesn't work. So, so Augustine, yeah, I mean, it's really worth reading in On the Trinity. It's book 12. Um, he, he does a very detailed exposition of this and um, it's great. It's, it's so uh, sort of Baroque in its explanation of, of how 
this is an, uh, telling you that women are subordinate, but they're not really. So, so he tries to get out of it in in his own particular way. But the but the anthropology that he's working with is so alien to how we understand male and female relations that it's um, anyway. It's a fascinating study for us in how people received it. On the basis of your work, what what are what's the main takeaway that you'd like um, for women in the church? Um, Actually, I'd like to hear you say, what, what would you like women to hear from this, and what do you want men to hear from what you've written? Um, oh, yeah, and going, you, go, just going back to your original question, you asked me how women respond to this, but I've had some very strong reactions from men as well who um, really struggle with these texts, so it's not just the women. Um, the, the takeaway for me would be that I think Paul is a champion of women. So that was, and really the reason I went into the whole study of of women, it wasn't women, it was Paul. So Paul, because I loved Paul's writings. And so I kind of, I definitely went in with an agenda of, I'm sure he's saying something positive. And, and I guess that's had its own, you know, had its own consequences. Um and but I really do think he is saying positive things to women, and I think that his ministry, the history of his ministry, backs that up. So it's not just me and a whole bunch of other people saying, "Oh, we think Paul was favourable to women." We can see that Paul was favourable to women because he he promoted them to positions of leadership and authority and um, responsibility, and 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 clearly thought extremely highly of them and speaks of them as his co-workers and sisters etc in in the same breath as the men so I don't think he saw any difference between his female colleagues and his male colleagues and uh, and so I think it's great to be able to read the his the text that people assume are where he suddenly says oh no no but you should actually just be sitting down quietly and doing this and that and wearing your head covering um, to read them in an opposite way and say it wasn't him it was the Corinthians and of course Paul being Paul was releasing women into all that God has for them and I think that's who he was and what would you like men to hear I'd like men to hear um, that this is part of the gospel and that I, I've taught this a lot and I find that a lot of men actually, it frees them from a way of relating to women that they weren't really comfortable with in the first place. And um, not everyone, but but really the majority, I don't think that most men want to want women to be submissive and subordinate to them. And and so they're just massively relieved when because what they knew in their heart, in their spirits or whatever, is suddenly... Um, it's suddenly endorsed and affirmed by scripture rather than them feeling they're living in some sort of tension with the Bible that they love and the women that they love. <laughs> well, Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. <laughs>